0: this week on Making Contact.
1: How can we believe that the United States government can go into Chile and overthrow the government, but they can't kill people here? If they are going to do it there, brothers and sisters, they're going to do it here. And that's what the Chicano movement was all about. It was the demasking of the state to say, you struggle, you take the consequences. We still haven't
2: reached that pinnacle where we should be at and it's gonna come again. And all of us older people, we have a responsibility to support the younger people. And they're gonna create a movement based on their social conditions, their social reality, and they're gonna develop their own leadership.
0: Today on Making Contact, we'll present the documentary, Symbols of Resistance, a tribute to the martyrs of the Chicano movement A reflection on the untold stories of the chicano movement with a focus on colorado and northern new mexico produced by freedom archives and narrated by brenda montano the film delves into issues of cultural identity student activism land rights and social justice in the face of police oppression in part two we look at grassroots organizing and chicano students roles as leaders in the fight for land rights and social justice We'll hear the voices of activists Priscilla Balcon, Ricardo Romero, Juan Espinosa, Freddy Trujillo, Kiko Martinez, Corky Gonzalez, Jose Calderon, Deborah Espinosa, Jose Esteban Ortega, and Rita Melgares. <laughs>
1: point in the 1960s there was a lot of upheaval around the country the black panther party was on the move we began to learn about other struggles internally in the united states today we talk about globalization and what globalization means is neoliberal politics but in the 1960s globalization was really about self-determination and decolonization for third world countries people who were in national
3: liberation struggles it was during an era of what was called national liberation Former colonies of European powers or America were being liberated or freeing themselves or freeing themselves more. Like Cuba was more free, the Congo was more free, an African became president of the Congo in 1960, Uh, Algeria became free. So these movements of independence and national liberation pushed back the imperial power. And that was in the early 60s and into the early 70s. And that's where we learned about
1: liberation about self-determination. It was through the experiences in, in 1959 with the Cuban Revolution. We knew that Che Guevara and the Cubans had opposed the United States and that they had dared to speak and that they had dared to voice and that they had dared to stand up. And so we then embraced that because that was our struggle too. And then I think that
0: Priscilla Bacon.
1: probably the biggest impact on the Chicano movement in terms of self-determination and understanding oppression came with our understanding of what was happening with the Vietnam War. Understanding Vietnam, what had happened, the colonialism, the French colonialism, then the U.S. involvement, U.S. Uh, troops and military and the amount of monies and, and our relatives had gone to World War II and now our uncles were going to, to, to the Vietnam War and understanding what that
0: meant. Juan
4: Espinosa I was in Tanang Air Force Base I was in the Air Force I worked on F-4 Phantoms worked on the flight line and I remember the night that we got word that Martin Luther King had been assassinated all the black airmen that were in our squadron all moved in one barracks that night and they spray painted on the side of the barracks black power I just remember thinking about that thinking about it a lot for days before that year was over I decided that I didn't think we ought to be in Vietnam. I went to my commanding officer and I told him that I didn't think that I could do any more uh, to support the war. And he kind of read the riot act and said, well, you know, that in a war zone, uh, that could be treason.
5: As a result of its impact across all sectors of society, the anti-war movement in the United States faced intense state repression. One of the most influential anti-war mobilizations for the Chicano movement was the Chicano Moratorium, held in August 1970. More than 30,000 people marched in East Los Angeles to protest the war in Vietnam. The police brutally attacked the peaceful march, killing four people and arresting more than 150.
0: Juan Espinosa.
4: And I knew about the anti-war movement in the United States, and I made a commitment to myself that as soon as I got back to the States, I was going to get involved somehow with the anti-war movement
0: priscilla Bacon.
1: so all of those ideologies flooded into our mindset into our vocabulary and we began to see a reflection of ourselves in those struggles and that was empowering when you could see what they were doing and you could understand your own social conditions and say yes we can change these things
2: Ricardo Romero. I think one of the most uh, important things of that time period is there was a a really good relationship from students to community and community to students. You know, and that was really key. And and I always felt that students were really an integral part of, of the work we were trying to do. And we needed to break open that aspect And it was a very progressive, radical sector.
1: When we went to to universities and colleges, we were able to come together with other people that looked like us. We were able to acquire an understanding of what had happened to our community. And that is why the Chicano movement was a grassroots movement. It was a grassroots movement where people came together and they shared stories, they shared experiences, And we all came from those small communities. Many of us had been migratory farm workers. My parents were farm workers. I was a farm worker. So we went to universities and found people who who shared those same experiences, who shared those same ideals. I was recruited to go to the University of Colorado at Boulder through the great society programs that were being created. Through the Migrant Action Program is how I ended up getting to the university. So once there, there was also an UMAS program that had been created in the United Mexican American Studies organization. And so those two groups were were kind of competing with each other. The MAP students, which is Migrant Action Program students that I was a part of, were told, don't talk to the UMAS organization because those are the radical folks. Those are the people that are going to get you in trouble. Those are the people that are doing the protesting. And probably that's the worst thing you can ever tell a young person. Don't go do something because the first thing you're going to do is go see what is happening over there that you're being left out of. So that's how I ended up participating in the in the organization.
6: Freddy Trujillo. In 1968 I went on campus and I heard this uh, Chicano power brown power so I asked this other freak, I was, hey man what's What's with this? Oh, they're UMAs and math, right? And they're communists. You should stay away from them. I says, well, (laughs) you are scary.
1: Part of our task was to go and to recruit students to come to the university campus. I was from the San Luis Valley, so I was appointed to go and recruit from high schools in the San Luis Valley. We had to do fundraising for the program because there wasn't financial support at that point. So women led a lot of the fundraising events that were going on. At that point, we were also involved in the political organizing part of it. So for the first time, you were beginning to understand what it was like to be in a protest, carrying a picket sign, going to Safeway on Saturday mornings, protesting at the university so that they would not have grapes on campus. And so it was empowering, and so many young women were involved in those processes of building the organization
0: Juan Espinosa Umas grew like a
4: prairie fire it 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 started with eight or nine students I understand and maybe a professor and the first year they had 60 students and the next year they had like 300 and after that they had 900 and by the time it reached its peak we had probably close to 1,400 students on the university campus
6: Freddie Trujillo in the morning I get out there and I oh God uh, remember I told you that I would never become a communist. I promised that. I said, but you know, says, there's an issue here. <laughs> These people are all talking Spanish, and they're eating Mexican food, and they're dancing, Chicano dances. Man, I want a part of that, man. I said, so, you know, uh, I'm going to join the Communist Party, man, because, you know, I want to eat well, live well. So I joined them. I said, my name is Juan Federico Miguel Arguello Trujillo, Azteca, mestizo, Chicano, and I fucking pissed off because they lied to me, man. All of this garbage about the fathers of my country, Lincoln. I bought that whole story, man. I had assimilated, but I didn't acculturate. And all of a sudden, they, del corazon, and they just drug me into it. And from that moment on, I belonged to Uma
0: Juan Espinosa.
4: We graduated more lawyers in one year than uh, Chicano lawyers than Colorado had ever had in its entire history. So, I mean, it was, there was big obstacles just being knocked out of the way, doors being swung open. And, and, uh.
0: Kiko Martinez. Ricardo Falcón, he was a very well-known student leader and activist,
2: very capable. Ricardo Romero. And he was a rough guy. He wasn't somebody you played around with. You know, if you're gonna mess with Ricardo, you're gonna have consequences. And he could move the people in the prisons. He could move the people in the barrios, and he could move the students.
0: Priscilla Bacon.
1: Ricardo had, had graduated from CU Boulder and applied to law school in late nineteen seventy one, early nineteen seventy two. He was admitted into law school. At that time, we were organizing feverishly for La Raza Unida here in Weld County, and he was a candidate for sheriff of Weld County.
5: La Raza Unida was created in 1970 to politically represent Chicanos in the Southwest. The party's grassroots campaigns and candidates won several local
1: elections. The community was prepared, meetings were held, delegates were selected. So Ricardo and and a carload of of people leave as with all of us, we, we, you know, we organize on a diamond of prayer. You, know, you, you go with what you have, and one of the friends had, a, had an older car, so they decided, well, well, that's what we have, that's what we'll take. So they took the old car, and the car was overheating, overheating various spots through their journey. They ended up in a little town called Oro Grande, New Mexico. So they pull into the gas station, the guys jump out of the car, they find the water spout. In those days they had water spouts at the station still. Open the hood, they're watering the radiator. Perry Brunson, the owner of the gas station, comes out and he says, "Uh, well, we don't waste water around here. What are you doing? We don't waste water around here. Ricardo says, well, the car's overheating, we need to get it cooled off. And and Perry Brunson says, well, you know, I don't appreciate you doing this. And he says, Don't worry, we're gonna we'll pay you, we'll reimburse you, we'll we'll take care of it. And he says to the group, You Chicano motherfuckers are all alike. And he walks back into the station and so Ricardo says to the group, I'm gonna go in and see what's going on with this guy and pay him for the pay for the water. As he walks into the gas station, he opens the door, Perry Brunson's inside and in front of him is a counter and he reaches into the counter and pulls out a thirty eight and shoots Ricardo five times. Uh, one of the gentlemen that's out in the car hears the gunshots. He runs in, and he he then tr- wrestles Perry Brunson to the ground for the gun. Ricardo has turned around and walked out of the gas station and then collapses, and he bleeds to death. I would like to say that since I've been here on Wednesday. And from what I've been able to see, I know, I know in my heart and in my soul that my husband was murdered. The town of Oro Grande and Alamogordo helped Mr. Brunson in every way they could with the murder because no attempt, no attempt of any sort of help was given to my husband. I would like to ask Mr. Brunson and the community of Oro Grande and the community of Alamogordo. I would like to ask them. How do I tell my two-year-old son that my husband was murdered? He was murdered in Alamogordo over water, and no help was given to him. I would like to ask him, that why was he murdered by this racist man, Mr. Brunson, who belongs to the American Independent Party, and how do I explain this to my son?
0: Corky Gonzalez. We lost a man. Brunson walked out on his own, his own personal recognizance.
6: No Chicano, no black, no member of minority group in this country would have been given the graces that Perry Brunson was given. And Perry Brunson
0: reminds us once more of the racist society that we have to deal with. Jose Calderon.
1: Ricardo Falcon was a strong man in a society that wants everyone weak and dying from the disease of social, cultural, and political exploitation. Ricardo was an individual in a melting pot that seeks to control us and manipulate us. Ricardo was el grito del barrio Bato in a society that crucifies the Bato, nails the rebel mind to the cross of Racismo America. Justicia, equalidad, community control, self-determination, All part
0: of a movimiento within Ricardo to win the long-time suffering of our Chicano brothers and sisters. Priscilla Bacón.
1: Understanding, uh, number one, the, the assassination itself. Number two, understanding the American Independent Party, George Wallace, what he stood for. What that did is it began to unveil the state. What apparatuses the state was able to use, what were willing to use, to annihilate its own population. We grow up believing in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights and that you have all these rights and privileges. But then these experiences happen to you and an unveiling happens where you say, no, there's something wrong here. We have to explain this. What does this mean to me? And I think there's several choices that we make. One, we can just back off and not do anything. Or number two, you step up and say, no, this is wrong you you become a Lupé Brecenio, You become a Josie Luján. You become a, a Néva Romero. You become a Nula Una Jacola, and you say no, these things are wrong, and we have to challenge these things. And so you have a, you have this evolution, this development uh, over time. Perry Brunson was acquitted of the murder of
5: Ricardo Falcon.
6: Ricardo Falcon.
0: Deborah Espinosa
7: As we got more involved as students we had no avenues um, to push our issues forward that's why we always had to hit the streets that's that was our best recourse was to hit those streets and let the people see us And so eventually we had our own martyrs within the movement, people who really put their lives on the line to take issue with um, all of this repression.
0: Ricardo Romero.
2: The attack on on the student movement was really key for the state because uh, uh, there's no revolutionary movements in the world without an intelligentsia. And this was the intelligentsia.
7: We had people in, in employment, in positions you know uh, who were very vocal and were leaders and um, uh, activists. And they stood with the students and, and unfortunately, Ricardo Falcon was fired. he was let go, and uh, a number of students were banned from campus. Juan
0: Espinosa. They started messing with us.
4: They were alarmed by how we were changing the culture of the university. And they started losing our financial aid applications, our files. The most vocal, the most uh, the strongest advocates, the, the militants, the ones that were doing the, leading the demonstrations and all that, they were being targeted. There was their financial aid files that were being lost. And that summer, there was a purge of, I would estimate, at least 90 students that were blacklisted from the university and told that they couldn't come back. I think they got restraining orders against most of them.
5: Throughout the early 1970s, the climate on UC Boulder's campus remained tense. On October 29, 1973, a handful of students took over an office in Regent Hall. After a brief standoff, students marched on Mackey Auditorium to confront Vice President James Corbridge and State Representative Sandy Arnold. A meeting with the governor was promised, but the governor left after only five minutes and the UMA students were forced out by state police. The Occupation of TV1
2: followed. De
0: Deborah Espinosa
7: Things just got more heated. Long story short, some students decided that they needed to take over the Equal Opportunity Office. It was a little building in the back of the campus, nothing significant. In fact, it was slated to be knocked down, and, and, and they called it TB1, Temporary Building Number One.
6: I was one of the original eight people that took over TB1.
7: On the morning of May 13,
5: 1974, eight students occupied TB1. The students demanded the firing of UMAS EOP Director Joe Franco and Assistant Director Paula Costa for approving attacks on students. The TB1 occupation became an epicenter for student organizing over the next three weeks.
0: Freddie
6: We thought we'd be in there just a couple, two, three hours because we had taken buildings before on campus, and, and they had, uh, uh, after a couple, two, three hours of negotiation, they would let us leave the building, right? Well, uh, we ended up uh, staying there. We ended up staying in this building.
0: Deborah Espinosa.
7: A day passed, two days, three days, four days. We were not getting any communication, and it was very clear that they weren't going to work with us. And uh, we were nearing the end of the semester and graduation, now going into a second week. Campus basically fell quiet. Most of the students were gone for the summer. Juan
0: Espinosa. The
4: very first day, we, we burned a coffin out here because we said that UMAS was dead. But the university had killed Umas, and we buried it. We burned it, and we buried it, and we put up a cross.
5: In the final days of the occupation, police surveillance and harassment increased. On the evening of May 27th, an explosion rocked Boulder's Chautauqua Park.
0: Freddy Trujillo.
6: The 27th of May. <laughs> it was killed in
0: Reyes... Martinez and una jacola. Jose Esteban Ortega.
6: So that night we were outside. It was a beautiful night. But we heard a blast, a tremendous blast. And it was crack, Boom. Unbelievable. But it was only two, three seconds long. And we didn't know what to do, where, where it was, what was going on. We sent some people up here to look around. They had found Neva's ID card up here near the car. Everybody knew Neva on campus. She was an on the student council, 21 years old.
0: Deborah Espinosa.
7: It was in the middle of the night when my husband woke me up and said, you know, I, I had my little girl next to me. She was just a year old. And uh, this is, you better go home. There's been an explosion at Chautauqua Park and they found Neva's ID. And I went downstairs and everyone was just in shock.
0: Jose Esteban Ortega. You know, we couldn't believe that it would happen. And secondly, uh, she was uh, one of our, of our leaders and so that hurt. Rita Melgares.
3: Reyes was 25 years old when he died. He left behind a grieving family. He left behind people who cared about him, people that he had been struggling with. He left behind a brother that loved him dearly, a brother that had shared with him the experience of law school and of young lawyers active in the movement.
0: Kiko Martinez. I read about it in the New York Times because I was gone.
2: At first, the authorities were speculating that I was one of the dead. And my mother's quoted in the media as saying that I've buried once and I'm preparing, I'm making preparations
0: to bury another one. Rita Melgares.
3: I remember being in law school and missing Reyes's company so much, missing Francisco's company. And it wasn't Francisco that I would write to because he was alive and I still had the hope that somewhere, someday we would see him again. But to Reyes it was easy to write letters and tell him how much I missed him, that he had dropped the fusil, his armament had fallen with his death, and that I would pick it up.
5: The night of the first bombing, about 60 students gathered at tb one in shock and disbelief. Heriberto Teran, an aspiring poet, wrote a piece titled Aztlan está de luto in honor of Reyes, Una, and Neva. Suenan de nuevo los tambores de entiero. Aslan está de luto. Los gritos de color vuelan con el aire. Tres madres lloran por sus hijos. Porque Aslan está de luto de nuevo. Florencio Granado gave a passionate speech in which he declared that Chicano blood had been spilled. He paraphrased Che Guevara and said, If I advance, follow me. If I hesitate... Push me. If I betray you, kill me. If I am assassinated, avenge me.
6: Freddie Trujillo. Freddie came up and he said, You know, we got to do something about what's happening here. Gave us that pep talk, you know, hang in here and all of this stuff. And and we were doing the best that we could because we were dying of a broken heart.
0: Deborah Espinosa.
7: 48 hours later, Esteban Ortega came in and said, Did you hear that? It said, no, what are you talking about? It sounded like an explosion.
6: Granados had been killed. Francisco Doherty, Roberto Terran, and Antonio Alcantar had been really hurt, really bad, but he was alive. We didn't really break down because, you know, 48 hours between two bombings, you know.
5: We here at Laredo Junior College were very much impressed by Francisco's ability to endear himself to his professors, staff, as well as students. We feel we have lost a future potential physician, as well as a warm close friend.
6: Freddy Trujillo We hugged each other and cried and screamed and hollered and did everything that we had to do to let go of that, that
0: anger and that pain. Juan Espinosa
4: After the second bombing, I don't know if it was like the very first day, but Or later in the day, but the phone rang, and it was somebody from the university, and they they said that they wanted to meet and negotiate an end to our occupation. And myself and a a law student by the name of Manuel Lopez went and met with the number two guy in the administration here. We sat down and we negotiated a an end to the occupation.
0: Freddie
6: Trujillo and uh, we finally left. We finally left the building. At that point, we'd been in that building for about three weeks.
5: The students and the CU Boulder administration agreed that Franco and Acosta would be removed from their positions, UMAS EOP would be restructured to include elected student leadership, and those involved in the occupation would be granted amnesty from criminal prosecution. The six murdered activists became known as Los Sexta Boulder. No one was ever charged for the deaths of those
4: six.
6: Reyes Martinez. Neva Solis Romero. Una Chacola. Hey!
2: Francisco Dardi. Hey! Florencio hey! Ferri Granado. Elberto hey! hey! Teran.
3: of the
1: Chicano movement unleashed the pretensions of the U.S. state. The martyrs of the Chicano movement, what they basically did is what Paulo Freire said. You have to take the mask off. You have to take that bubble wrap off and see what the reality is. And that's what they did for us.
0: And that's it for part two of Symbols of Resistance, a tribute to the martyrs of the Chicano movement a documentary produced by the Freedom Archives in San Francisco, California. Check out our website, radioproject.org, to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening.